Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Dealership Fix-It Podcast. It's Brian Croft. Today, I'm on the line with a, a guy in the trenches, a dealership guy working at a dealership. Um, you've heard him recently on my uh, five-minute Heartburn to Heartbeat segment. Uh, Mandy's got his own podcast, and he can tell you about that, too. But uh, I've got from Graham KTM, Jake Lowry on the line. Jake, thanks for jumping on. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure. Absolutely, man. Um, what do you do? So Graham KTM um, is, I think we mentioned on the other one, you you said you're uh, close proximity to the, the Memphis, Tennessee metropolitan, but you're in Mississippi, right? Yes, that's correct. And what um, what's your role at the dealership? So I am... I guess you would say the general manager. Um, but unlike a general manager at a probably mega dealership where they just kind of oversee stuff, um, I am the do all. <laughs> I, um, if it comes to selling bikes, uh, working in the, the parts department, ordering parts, uh, stocking the shelves. Checking in the inventory when it comes in, um, you know, doing the stocking orders with the sales rep, uh, keeping up with what's coming in, what's going out. Um, I mean, all of the day-to-day operations are on my plate. Um, even sometimes mechanicing, depending on how busy we are or, or slow we are. Um, so, yeah, everything. I do have – we do have a mechanic here that's full-time, so – you know, it's kind of my responsibility to make sure he's doing what he's supposed to be doing and he has things to do. Um, and we've got a part-time kid that's he's learning the mechanic side and doing a few other little things. Um, he's still in high school, so he's learning. But we're trying to kind of show him the ropes. He races and all. We support him with that. He's local. So um, just trying to have another enthusiast kid that, you know, whether he – decides to go to college or, or what he decides on that maybe this will you know it's at least learning and uh, well um, it's cool to kind of do the same thing for someone else and then donnie is our is the owner the boss um and donnie does he can i mean he does honestly the same stuff i do um he lets me kind of do a lot more of the um kind of management things of ordering um you know, keeping track of what we need, how much we need, doing the big orders and things like that. And he kind of sticks to the, um, dealing with his customers that he has. And he has to deal with the other sides of the business because there's kind of three businesses in one. So he has to do some of the other stuff. And, uh, yeah, just um, life of uh, being in a small motorcycle-only shop. But the cool thing is, being a motorcycle guy, um, it's pretty cool to not have to do fours and side by sides, and you know, deal with that side of it. We can just, you're just focused. We're just focused on two wheel motorcycling and a lot of off road. So um, that's my wheelhouse, and it, it makes it sometimes it's a lot of work, but it makes it enjoyable when it's the stuff that you want to be doing. Well, the it, you know, as being what what it sounds like, you know, especially with the brands with KTM. 
uh, Husky, Beta, uh, I, and I'm probably missing. I don't know what else you have. Gas, there. gas, gas, gas. Okay. Um, yep. Obviously, that's you know race minded, a performance type shop, but it's still a franchised OEM uh, shop. You said your three shops in one. So what are your your uh, your power sports? And what is it? Well, no, so yeah, so um, Donnie's dad actually had, I think he was like a Western Auto a long time ago. They went out of business and he bought into being a Napa store. Mm. Uh, then Donnie didn't live here at that time. He moved back. I mean, I moved back shortly after that. He was in North Carolina, moved back home and started working for his dad, but he wanted to have a motorcycle shop. So he, uh, KTM at that time in 2000 was like somebody, something that he could get easy and put in the back of the Napa store and they'd be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it started out as, you know, a handful of KTMs in the back of the Napa store. And now the motorcycle part is doing as much or more than everything else. And honestly needs its own place, which that's in the works. The new location is in the works where the motorcycles and the e-bikes and we do specialize in Husqvarna e-mountain bikes also. So that's in the works to hopefully in the next year, year and a half, we'll be in a kind of be in its own deal. And that opens the door for us to do some more. Like you said, we're kind of a race, racer shop, a um, little more um, race specific. So it kind of opens doors where we can maybe do some suspension service, have a suspension guy in house, you know, be a WP service center. Um, and even just do a little more things that cater more towards the racer guy, which is already a, our huge, that's our big customer bases, you know, the heavy racer. So um, just kind of do something to help that grow. It's try, growing every day. It's growing more and more. Um, but we're going to start getting to a point to where we can't grow anymore because of room and just because of our limitations on being in the location we're at right now. So, um, and then also we do a lawn equipment side. So we do Husqvarna lawn equipment, Xmark lawn equipment, steel, uh, like handheld lawn equipment. Um, so that's a whole nother side of it. And, uh, so there's 15 employees here and there's only three and a half of us that are on the motorcycle side. Um, all the other guys do, they're doing all the other stuff. Um, I'm not really asked to do anything else because I'm, you know, they, they know how much I've got on my plate for the motorcycle stuff. Um, Gretchen, the mechanic, this full-time motorcycle is not really asked to do anything else but work on motorcycles. And then there's Donnie, which he does. He tries to only do motorcycles, but sometimes he has to do, you know, he's, he's a co-owner with his parents, so he has to do a lot of the other stuff. That, um, you know, just ownership stuff that's his responsibility he has to do. So um, it's kind of unique. People are always kind of mind-boggled a little bit when they come in. Um, <laughs> but once they get to know us and they, you know, they talk to me, Donnie or Grace, and they're, you know, they're like, okay, these guys are motorcycle guys. They know what's up. And uh, the cool thing, um, the other guys know that they don't know anything motorcycle related, so they don't they don't try to get involved. Somebody asks for motorcycles, and they say, "Okay, let me get you to the motorcycle guy," and they transfer it. So there's no like um, people getting led the wrong way. Where I feel like 
some of the big dealerships where it's not really separated. You know, a guy calls and the salesman he's talking to is not, he's not well-versed with dirt bikes. So he has no idea what to tell the guy. And he just kind of just tells him whatever. And it, a lot of your dirt bike guys, even your street bike guys, they get the vibe of, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So they give up on the shop. Whether it's the shop's fault or just the one guy's fault is, you know, you don't know. But um, the model kind of needs to be like, you got to have some, you got to have some dedicated motorcycle guys in your dealership or your customers are kind of going to get the, the wrong representation of your business. Yeah. It's like a street cred thing, right? These days. I mean, and you guys, you know, you have some, some heavy hitter, definitely high competition type motorcycles. And at that level, I think a lot of consumers expectation is very high because at that point their knowledge level is high. So they expect to come to you and you know more than them about something, you know, and, uh, and if you're, yeah, for sure, if you're watered down, you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. We get a lot that, you know, the guy's ridden in the past doesn't exactly know what he wants anymore. And if you can't, you know, ask the guy, okay, what kind of riding do you do? And he tells you, you know, says, Hey, I'm, you know, 55 and I'm just, I, I rode motocross in the past, but it's been 20 years and I'm just going to ride, you know, some Enduros and trails with my buddy. Well, then we know that, Hey, you need a 250 or a 300 XCW, you know, and unless you're just a guy that's against a two stroke, then, you know, then it's, you're going to be a little bit more work on a four stroke, but, um, you need a W model most likely because that's, you know, that's the Enduro bike. It's, you know, Power's catered more towards that. Uh, it's not going to be a handful for you. And when you know to tell the guy leading to the right bike and give him the answers of why that's the right motorcycle, you pretty much win the sale a lot more uh, than just being the guy that's like, I hope he knows what he wants because I don't, you know, I don't know what he's going to need. And uh, you just have a lot of customers that kind of read through that and they want to, they really want to deal with the shop that, you know, that can tell them you know, what they need versus sometimes what they think they want. You know, you know, a lot of guys that I want a 450 SXF and they're not that level of rider. And, you know, if you don't have any knowledge of the sport, it's hard to talk them off that ledge. But if you have some knowledge and they, they see that you do, you can kind of talk them down into at least a 350, maybe hopefully a 250. But, um, you know, you can you can talk them off the ledge of you know getting the most powerful thing out there when they don't need that, and uh, that's kind of what we rely on a lot. Um, and I wouldn't say really rely on; it's kind of just that's all that you know. All of us are in it so much that it's just kind of it's just us. But it um, it gets a lot a big following, and then also with the really heavy racer guys, you know where we understand like, Hey, let's keep some crankshafts for pretty much every two stroke out there. We know we're not going to sell them just, you know, three times a month or something, but these guys are going to eventually need them. And when the guy that really races calls you and you've got everything he needs on the shelf, it's like you won that guy. You know, he's not going to the internet. He's, he's going to the shop because you've got the stuff in stock, but, you know, the shop he calls and he's called him three times and they don't even have a spark plug for his bike. Well, he gives up and, uh, kind of, I, I would say that goes with 
you get a lot of shops that I've heard in the past, you know, they complain about online retailers. Well, if you won't keep stuff in stock, do you blame the customer for going online and buying it and online's got it in stock? They can have it two or three days. So that's kind of, well, you that's know, kind of where we, yeah. we all seem to bridge that gap, you know, we're consumers on, on one side. And then if we work, you know, retail, we're, we're relying on consumers to rely on us and not go buy elsewhere. But, um, we definitely know that, you know, things happen and in, in, in riding and especially racing things happen and, and it becomes a bigger, um, emergency, so to speak. You know, I got a race this week and I just determined that this needs to be replaced. Do you have the parts? Are you going to save me here? You know, my, my lack of planning, I'm, I'm relying on you to, to bail me out of the emergency corner I've put myself in. So, you know, you guys, if, if that's been your uh, deal there is to be heavily race shop, then yeah, that, that makes sense. And, uh, and it kind of goes to, I was looking at your website, you guys definitely have a lot of, you know, um, and right on Google when I was, before I got to you, you got a ton of, of, uh, great reviews. You're like 40 or more reviews. Um, and you're, 4.7 so somewhere in there somebody dinged you for something but all the ratings that i'm scrolling through just a ton of of high all five star ratings so that sounds like it goes right to what you're talking about you know you're you're jumping through a lot of hoops to to keep the most particular probably the most particular customer you know the racers who who are quick to flip and go elsewhere for for instant availability if needed um, and you've got some some really high marks. So I don't know what you're doing specifically to keep that going, but. Yeah, I, I mean, really, it's just being truthful and honest with people. You know, sometimes you can't, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Parts are on back order or, you know, you just didn't have it, whatever it is. And, you, you know, a lot of times you're just honest with people um, and, you know, following up uh, a lot of stuff, you know, guys will text and it's on Sunday afternoon, you know, and they text either the store or maybe they, you know, know me personally. And, you know, they text and they're like, Hey, you know, I need this or that. And then coming in Monday and following up and saying, Hey, yeah, you know, I got it or I don't have it, but I can have it Wednesday and just staying on top of it, you know, staying on top of making sure you get stuff ordered. So it comes in in a timely manner. And I mean, it's really, not rocket science. I mean, it's just, you know, basic customer service, but, um, actually, I feel like actually taking it serious, um, goes a long ways. And when you're in their shoes, when you race yourself, you know, you kind of, you get the urgency, you know, you understand, you know, and, uh, and the more you get some of these kids that are really racing at a high level coming to you and they like you and they've had, you know, a positive experience will they tell their buddies and then their buddies want to go there. And it's just that, you know, it spreads. And, uh, so we've had a, a pretty, uh, good, pretty good luck. I would say maybe it's not luck. Maybe it's just us, you know, doing the right thing and it's just, it's spreading. But, um, you know, I get guys, I get blown away all the time by like the, you know, we'll have a name contact us about a bike. And I'm like, that kid just got third at Loretta's or that kid won Loretta's or what, you know, and I'm like, you know, they're calling us for a motorcycle and, uh, it's still, it's not a big deal, but it, it's still, you know, it's kind of pretty cool to me to be a little shop in Mississippi that moto's not even that good where we live. 
and to have guys from all over, you know, coming and buying bikes from us and wanting to buy bikes from us. Sometimes we don't get enough bikes of a certain model. It's just, it is what it is. I think every shop in the country deals with that. Um, but we try to be understanding to the guys and try to make them understand. So you get a lot of guys that are like, well, I really want to buy this motorcycle from you, but we're not getting any more for the year. And we really try to make them understand that, hey, we're not going to be mad. It's, it's not a problem. Like, let's find you a bike somewhere else. You know, we can contact some of the guys we know at other dealerships and let's at least get you on the brand or keep you on the brand that we sell. And when you need parts, you need service, come see us. You know, because at least then we can service you. If you go buy a Yamaha or a Kawasaki, well, then I lost you. I completely lost you, you know. And I feel like if more shops had that kind of, you know, mentality, um, it would probably help some OEMs out a little bit. And uh, But I feel like a lot of people would have a better experience with the whole motorcycling deal if, if they weren't ran off, you know, from certain shops by, well, it's... you know, maybe just not having a, always a positive attitude with it. Is it, you know, I, I, as you're saying that, it's making me imagine that, you know, obviously to, not to take anything away from you guys, but part of probably what's allowed you to be so successful is being so specialized, right? So, yes, you do have like lawnmowers and, you know, power equipment in that way, right? So it's not like you're a race-only shop. You guys are diversified, plus your, your auto parts uh, focus, you know, within the store, um, but with the the you know the vin machines you sell the, the power sports related things you don't have you know it doesn't sound like at least i, I didn't see it on your website you don't have a a whole big selection of you don't so you guys don't have you know a, a row of side by sides you know taking up half your store and such the mix of an audience um i think that you know, by doing that, obviously, or by choosing your path or choosing your specialty, you know, as much as we'd all like to try to be uh, completely diversified and have all of the different things. I've got, you know, quads, I've got side-by-sides, I've got bikes, I've got race bikes, play bikes, you know, name all the things. Obviously, we know you can fill a many, many large multi-line stores with all their lines and hedging all the bets to make sure everybody that wants a power sports unit will have exactly the thing thereafter. But when you don't do that and you choose to have the path of sort of more specialty like you guys have done, I'm kind of just wondering if if doing lesser things and that sort of that racer, going after uh, the racers to make sure you can hit all the marks for them and not be watered down. I don't want to keep saying watered down, but you know what I mean to uh, to try to be a more streamlined operation. It would seem like that obviously has been serving you guys well. Yeah. Um, and on, I mean, me and Donnie have this conversation a lot of, you know, kind of our model of, you know, the racer shop, you're kind of more dirt bike only, you know, with, with this, you know, handful of adventure bike and street bike that these, the brands that we carry, um, that they do. Um, it, it there's a handful of these racer shops across the country, just but not just a ton of them. And really, those guys are our competition. So we're going. I mean, you're six, seven hours away from us before you get before you get to any of these shops uh, in different directions. And um, you know, we feel like that model is a strong model to sell if you're wanting to sell motorcycles, dirt bikes, 
you know, more than more than street, but um, we felt like it works on street also. I mean, it works for Harley. You know, they only have Harleys in their dealerships, most of them, and they're all self-sufficient with just Harley. Um, but, but Donnie's had this conversation with some of the higher-ups at KTM and, and even other, other shops and things, and I think industry's kind of turning and looking at maybe – Maybe some of these shops are kind of onto something. Um, you know, it might be a little better if if we could maybe separate motorcycles a little bit somehow. Um, whether it be, you know, the store that's got everything has a separate like, you know, they completely separate the ATV side by side and motorcycle sections, and you know, um, it might be hard for them to do that. But if you're just motorcycle. I mean, you can have, I mean, a fifth of the building because spoilers and side by side take up, I mean, a massive, massive area right. that you've got to have for that, which you don't have to have that for dirt bikes and street bikes. Um, also, you really don't need as many employees. So you can kind of be, you can be smaller, a lot smaller overhead, but still pushing a, a you know, pretty good amount of units. Um, so if you're just looking at, hey, you know, profit margins versus, you know, what my overhead is, it probably could look pretty comparable um, if you're, you know, if you're specialty enough and, and actually able to move enough units. So we've talked to some industry people that are, you know, I think they like it. They like that. I know KTM likes that our kind of, you know, racer shop, like, you know, really focused on their brand. They like that more than the shop. It's got every line and has, you know, a handful of KTMs in there and they're, you know, not really trying to push them, right. you know, where we're not really trying to push them right now because they're honestly selling themselves because they've made a name for themselves the last few years where they've kind of overtaken the off-road market. But um, it seems like the uh, the way that we think it should work is, is really – it's working right now. So it's, you know, um, it, but it's cool. It's cool to see, you know, our ideas of what we think could work and can work is actually working. And, you know, it's growing year after year. Um, I started here, I've been here for a little over five years and we've sold, I think our gross, and at least like four to five times as many bikes as we were selling five years ago. So that's uh, pretty good numbers. If you, if you saw where it was five years ago. Yeah. That's part of one of the next thing is I was kind of wondering about. So you're, you're going right in the direction I was imagining, I guess. Well, first, you know, I was curious more for you as an individual, like where did you come from before power sports? I mean, if, if you're a racer, my guess is you've been riding and racing. So maybe that's the draw, but I don't want to make the assumption. Maybe that's not the way it went, but how did you get interested in becoming and, you know, involved in working at a dealership? Cause you know, like we know a lot of people think it looks like a great idea to be around motorcycles all day and then you, you go and, do yeah. it and find out it's real work. So I'm kind of curious for where you came from when you got in the business and what sort of that journey has been like. And then since you've been there, the changes that, uh, that Graham seen, you know, in terms of build out of the dealership, like you say, if you're, if you're got other things in the actual building and your, your motorcycles are starting to take up more space, like what that starts to look like. Yeah. So I had no choice 
um, to be in the motorcycle industry. <laughs> My dad owns a little independent shop. Um, I am 34, close to 35, and his shop has been in business for 36 years. So uh, before I was born, he had started, he worked in the motorcycle in a motorcycle shop. Um, I think he was like 12 or 13 when he started riding. And, uh, you know, back in the, I hear stories of how cool it was back in the seventies that, you know, everybody rode, you know, went to school and, you know, pretty much every kid rode and, uh, you could go ride wherever you wanted to, you you know, ride down the street. And if there was trails or whatever, you go ride. And so my dad got into it and, uh, I guess he just had that mechanical, just, you know, natural mechanical abilities, started working on buddy's bikes at his, in his little garage. So he started working at shops early on and he didn't like how the shops were in our area, which I am two and a half hours north of where he's at now. So he's in central Mississippi and he just didn't like how, how motorcycling was in that area or how, you know, not necessarily the sport itself, how it was, but just how the shops were, how they treated motorcycle people. Just, he didn't think it was, as good as it could be. So he, uh, after, you know, working at several different dealerships, going to a bunch of different tech classes for Kawasaki, Suzuki, all the different brands, he decided to open his own shop. And, uh, it was, I would say probably a pretty smart thing since he's, uh, 36 years down the road and, and still, still rocking and rolling with it. So when I was born, you know, I was, I remember being, you know, three, four, five years old and running around in the shop. And I have sales reps that are my still sales reps for companies now that I work with. And even some that have gotten old enough that they've retired. But, um, you know, I've known these guys my whole life. So it's, uh, that's kind of, you know, different than a lot. Cause, uh, I have a lot more of a personal relationship with some of these guys. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, I, I didn't know anything other than, you know, my dad owns a shop. I'm probably going to own this shop. But also, uh, my dad raced motocross. So, like most motocross dads, he wanted me to race. So, uh, I started riding when I was three, um, was racing at four, was racing Loretta's at six. And, you know, it was, I don't feel like he was the dad that was like, we're going to go win all this stuff and be super serious. And it was just, he raced. I like to race. So it was, you know, dad and son going racing on the weekend and it took us wherever it took us. And I mean, we went all over, um, early years of my life. My grandfather had a track and my dad helped out a lot with it. Then my dad took it over for a couple of years, but we were racing so much just for me going places and, you know, me trying to, you know, do these little amateur nationals and just thinking that, you know, we didn't ever think I would be anything, but it was more of like, you know, you, you race. So you want to be, you want to win. You kind of want to be, you know, the best. So you're going to go do the races to, you know, help you do that and actually compete at, you know, a higher level than just going to your local little track and racing. So, uh, my dad let the track go in 2000 because he just didn't have the help and the time to do it with his own business and us racing like we were, which we found out 
a few years down the you know later that we probably shouldn't have let it go because we lost a lot of tracks and just didn't have anywhere local to go. But that could be for another another story another time. So um, we uh, I probably didn't make the decision that like I was for sure going to work in his shop until oh, man probably. 2011, 12 or so. Um, so I graduated high school in 2006. And at that time I was an intermediate rider. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a higher ranked intermediate rider. I, uh, 2006, I mean, I, um, would have been my second year to race the B class at Loretta. So, um, at that point I'd been to Loretta's a bunch, 50, 60s, 85s, you know, the, the B class twice. Um, and then 2007, my last year in B, I got second in my regional one of moto. So I kind of went in as like, you know, a kid that, you know, people know that could maybe, maybe squeak in there and, and do something. Um, I got the whole shot, the first moto and then was running fifth and crashed all on my own. Just, you know, one of these, you know, mine just not in it or something and uh broke my ankle so I, I tried to ride the rest of the week but it didn't work and at that point i had been like i was done with high school but i wasn't in college and it's like i'm working at my dad's shop you know because i started working there in 2005 um during the summer i would work during the summer when i my senior year of high school i got out at 12 and i would work from 12 till six o'clock um and we just raced on the weekends you know it was never more than that but after Loretta's in 07, um, I moved up to the A class and my goal was to get my pro license. So immediately, uh, as soon as my ankle healed, I mean, it probably wasn't even 100% healed, but as soon as the closest pro am popped up, which was at Freestone in Texas after the same weekend as the pro national, I was there, um, and got like third in the 250 pro class. So got good points and me and another buddy from Texas are like, all right, we're going to Glen Helen because that's the next next weekend that's the next one so loaded up the van and you know went from texas to california uh got some more good points there and then january of 08 so i was in the middle of my pro point i crashed and broke my femur and i remember laying there being like it's done it's over like i'm this a six-month recovery you know i'm uh, you know like this was you know, me trying everything, and, and this is probably it. I'm going to have to start over on pro, pro points. It's another year. Um, but I worked my butt off and uh, had a, a really good doctor or doctors, um, and I was back on the bike in 10 weeks after a broken femur, which is maybe a record. I don't, I don't know. Um, so uh, I wasn't 100% on the motorcycle. I was 100% healed to where – you know, I could actually be out there, but I, I wasn't quite a hundred percent in my riding, but it was enough to finish out my point. Uh, got my pro license, tried to qualify for Red Bud that year. Um, it was an eye opening experience and then went to Loretta's in the A class that year. And then after, um, after Loretta's, I was, you know, I wanted to be like, you know, all the, you know, kids that are winning the class. I'm, you know, I've got my license. I'm, I'm doing the last outdoor nationals, like, you know, the graduating Loretta's class or whatever. So we did the last few nationals, um, had some friends that I had raced with, but I didn't really know. 
but they were from Mississippi. So I'm like, they were already doing the nationals. So they invited me to, you know, come with them, stay in their RV and stuff. So went out on the road by myself again with it, with some guys that, you know, I, I'm now really good friends with them, but at the time I, I didn't really know them and just, you know, like, Hey, I'm just gonna, you know, gonna tag along here. Um, and those nationals, I didn't make any of them, but I was you know, learning and stuff. And then 2009, uh, got my Supercross license and man, had no idea about Supercross. Like very, very green because in all my area, there's really nowhere to go and ride Supercross. It's just like, you know, so was lucky to have a couple guys that were privateers that um, were somewhat close to me, a few hours where I could drive, you know, stay a couple of days, learn it a little bit. So we did East Coast Supercross that year, um, and it was just pretty much a learning experience. And then outdoors that year, I actually started in the Fast 40, actually qualifying for nationals. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's uh, – so, to some people, you know, I, I guess if you're a fan of the sport, you're really in it. Like, people are like, oh, did you qualify for nationals? Like, you know, and they kind of they kind of get a little, like, you know, wow. But – once you've kind of done it and you're in it, you're just like, I mean, it's really nothing to, you know, make the fast 40, whatever, you know, I got well, lucky a few times. It's the, it's and, the food uh, chain, right? That's the, we're, yeah. we're, we're all somewhere <laughs> in that, in that food chain. And when you watch the, the top guys, well, when you go to a local race, right, you watch the hierarchy there and you know, like, wow, okay, the fast guys are the slow guys. It's a big, a big range there. Right. But then when you watch at the top level of our sport, the guys that are, that's their job professional level and been groomed into position, worked really hard to get there. And then like you say, your local pros or your guys who aspire to do that, you know, if, at the best of their ability, but it's still that food chain, you know, at that point. And yeah, you got to see it up close and in personal inside of it. Yeah. And I mean, it's cool. Like I can, you know, I teach in motorcross schools now. So like that, that goes a long way um, with people that, you know, you actually, you actually did it. You actually did, you know, you didn't just get your pro license, but you did like, actually make the races and compete. So it that does go a long ways with people. Um, and, uh, you know, if I could go back in time, I would have tried a lot harder. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you just don't, it's not reality to you yet until it's reality, you know, and to some of us, it's, it's, it's too late, you know, and, uh, and that was kind of, you know, my thing. I didn't really stick around with it long enough. Um, 2009 was like my only full season. So I did East Coast Supercross all the rounds, and I did 9 to 12 Outdoor Nationals. And then and I did Loretta's that year also in the A class. Um, and then after that, um, 2010, I did Supercross. But we had a guy that, you know, was trying to have one of these little halfway privateer teams and help us out what he could. and it was a lot of, you know, I think the guy had the right intentions, but he didn't have the right kind of money. So when the money started to run out, you know, it was lies and, you know, just it just was not fun to me um, when it became like a business side of it. Um, and just, you know, the, the not trustworthy kind of stuff. So um, 2010, I did Supercross, East Coast Supercross, and then, I did a handful of nationals, um, had a concussion at one of them. And that kind of, I had to take a, I had to take some time off and, uh, just, 
you know, my relationship with my now wife, but it was girlfriend at the time, was, you know, a lot more serious. Um, she was, you know, in nursing school trying to do her career. Um, I was working a lot at my dad's shop trying to learn stuff there. And uh, I just kind of was burnt out, really, on, you know, how pro racing was at that kind of level, at a privateer level. You have to, you have to really want to sacrifice life pretty much. And uh, I didn't, maybe at that time, didn't want to sacrifice maybe as much as needed to be. Uh, so uh, kind of took a step back, started doing a local series. Um, it's local to where I'm at now. My in-laws were living up here and a brother-in-law raced. So I could go race with them at the local little series. And uh, I could, you know, they had a, they didn't really have like a, a pro class. They just had these open classes that paid money. And they had 30, 40 guys in the class, and I could go win, and, you know, I could make 800 to to 1000 bucks for the weekend. And my expenses were paid because I'm going to the races in my in-laws and their motorhome. So it's like, should I, I'm just going to make this money and, you know, make something for me and my wife. And, you know, which we got married in 2010 and then had a our little boy was born in December of 2010. So it's like, you know, it's hard to, you know, turn – you want to make that money, you know, and like you're, you can make the money at a lower level. So I just was, you know, I did what, you know, I did what was fun and also what was more rewarding. Uh, and then in 2011, my father-in-law actually had bought into a little company that was making some foot pegs and, uh, they had a super soft team, which it was, it was like a little privateer, just, you know, normal thing, but, um, they wanted to keep it local. Uh, myself and my buddy Johnny Moore were the local fast guys around, so we ended up being on the Supercross team. And it was like my last two rides. Like, all right, we're doing it. You know, I'm gonna, you know, put it in, put some effort in. And it didn't go. It went like the, the year before because my father-in-law and the guy that owned the place didn't see eye to eye on how business should be. My father-in-law wanted out, and it just made it awkward. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to deal with the guy anymore after Supercross. So they went on to do the nationals, and I didn't. And I did like two nationals that year, just you know, off the couch pretty much. And uh, went back to doing the local series thing, making money. And then uh, I think 2012, I did that little local series too. Um, I was still racing, you know, when I could. Um, had my second boy was born in 2012, so I had my hands full with you know two infants and uh well a toddler and an infant and uh my wife's in school and she's working and in school and i'm trying to work and you know really learning my dad's business because by the time 2012 came around i might have been parts manager at that by that time i wasn't just a parts guy you know at my dad's place i was actually taking over the roles of running the whole parts department um and so i kind of you know that was kind of when it like my role there getting more serious, you know, me just getting more serious with real life kind of was like, okay, I've got to grow up, you know, and trying to be a privateer is not being grown up. Um, so, and I would say there are some, probably some privateers now that are way more serious with it and they're getting some help where they're making a little bit of money and they can do it but there's still some guys out there that, you know, they're chasing something that it's honestly, it's just, it's not there, you know? And, uh, 
you got to come to reality with that. And it's tough. It's tough for a serious racer to come to reality and be like, all right, it's over, you know? And, uh, but I kind of came to that. And, uh, so, so that's when I started, I was like, okay, I'm going to own my dad's place. And so I need to, I need to learn every aspect of this a little more than I, than I know. And, uh, you know, as time went on, I became, uh, my dad never would let me mechanic a lot because he's like, you got to learn like the, the business side of it, the management side of it. And, uh, so I didn't ever get to turn wrenches like I really wanted to some. Um, but we had, we never had a good service manager at my dad's place. And I had a guy under me in part that I knew he could do everything that I did. He could take over what I was doing. So, um, I talked to my dad and said, Hey, let me be the service manager. We'll let Ross be the parts manager. He can do it. He can handle it. And, easy to find a parts guy, you know, that, that's an easy position to fill. This service manager position has not been easy. So I moved over to service, um, learned a lot more of like, you know, how a service, how the shop should operate. Um, came up with some ideas of stuff on my own that I thought were, you know, good ideas. Um, and they still do the same thing today at my dad's place. Like they, they take in, they try to do appointments and everything comes in either Saturday or Monday. They try to make it Monday, but some people, you know, it's hard for them to drop it off on Monday. So Saturday deal. Uh, so everything comes in on Monday. And as long as it's not a rebuild or something that ends up waiting on parts because it's back ordered or, or something weird happens, 90% of the stuff is done by the weekend. So the guy's, his guy's bike or ATV or whatever, it's only in the shop for a week. And that was one thing that I implemented once I got into the service side of it was like, I want a week turnaround, you know, the guy's okay with, you know, waiting a week or two before he brings it in because it's in his possession. But I heard so many horror stories of guys taking it to a shop and I'm like, man, it's been there for three months and they haven't even looked at it, you know, and I didn't want that to be, I didn't want that to be anything that would happen. Um, or, and we didn't have the room for that. We didn't have the room for, you know, a bunch of units to sit there for two or three months, not get looked at and, and you're not making money. You know, it's, it's just stuff sitting there and you're not making money on it. So, uh, <clears throat> implemented that. And, uh, we would also do, uh, same day tire changes. Uh, so guys with street bikes, they bring it in, buy a tire. If, if we could make it work, we do it while they wait. Uh, we like to have appointments, so we knew it was coming in. Uh, but, you know, that was just being organized and staying on top of it and knowing, you know, keeping up with, hey, I got a guy showing up at one thirty with a Harley, and he needs a rear tire, and making sure that there's a bay open and a mechanic open to do it. And um, my dad still does it. And actually, that opened up to where, since I've been gone from there, his tire business has grown so much that he is actually the number one Dunlop dealer in the state of Mississippi, which might not be saying a whole lot because Mississippi probably is last on <laughs> tires, maybe not last, but maybe not way ranked in tire sales for the country, but uh, to be just a little independent shop and he's selling more than all the dealerships around. I mean, blowing them out of the water pretty much. Mm. It's, it's pretty cool. And uh, pretty cool to say that I had something to do with it for 10 years. Um, and I thought that was what I was going to do. I thought that I was going to own this shop. But you probably know with wife and kids, um, things change and you have to make decisions, 
you know, that, you know, benefit them or also for them to make them happy. So my wife uh, got accepted into school to be a pediatric nurse practitioner. And for some odd reason, none of the colleges in Mississippi at the time offered that program. We had to, we were, it was either South Alabama or Memphis, Tennessee to go to the University of Tennessee. Uh, they have their health science center in Memphis. So our parents already live in North Mississippi. So we're like, that makes the most sense. So uh, she sent her stuff in, got accepted, and I had to probably do the hardest thing ever and tell my dad that, hey, I'm, I'm leaving and we're moving two and a half hours away. And uh, so did that. And, you know, my wife went through school and she graduated and she, you know, has a job that, I mean, really and truly, it's it's kind of more of a guarantee to make, you know, really good money where a shop might not always be that guarantee to make that kind of money, especially a, a independent shop, not a dealership, you know. Uh, so uh, that's what got me to where I live now. But I was here for about a year, but well, not quite a year before I started working at Graham's. So I wanted to do motocross schools. It was really slow. I didn't know hardly anyone up here that was riding and racing at the time. Didn't have my own track. So I went to a Honda dealership. I knew a guy that worked there. And he's like, oh, yeah, man. Like, you know, I'm probably how you're out on the spot. Took my resume and all. Uh, tried to be as professional as possible because I had never done that. I had never went in and went inside anywhere and asked for a job. So it was, you know, this was new territory for me. Uh the general manager there was, was just, I'll be nice and just say he was a jerk. And uh, he was like, yeah, well, we're not saying, but you can leave your resume and, you know, give it to the, you know, so I gave it to one of the secretary girls and she's like, don't listen to him. He's an idiot. She's like, we're hiring like three or four positions. <laughs> so uh, they, he took my resume, gave it to the boss. And so before I left, one of the owners, he called me in his office. He's like, yeah. He's like, man, Jake, I, I know who you are just from your racing and stuff like that. I know about your dad's little shop. And he's like, so what do you want to do? And I told him, I said, well, I've been a parts manager and a service manager before, so I want to be in management. I don't want to be just a parts guy because I know a lot more than just being a parts guy. I can offer more to you than just being a parts guy. So they're like, well, we'll put you in, you know, we'll let you work in parts for a couple weeks and then we'll move you to service. We'll just kind of float you around so you can see how we do things and then we'll kind of see where you fit in and what, you know, what kind of doors open. So, um, after probably two weeks, I was like, I got to get out of this place. But <laughs> 80 days down the 70, 80 days down the road, I have still never left the park counter, you know? And, uh, it just was not like I imagined a, a motorcycle shop should be. Actually, they don't even do really do motorcycles. They're, I think supposed to on the Honda side, but they've asked Kawasaki and Yamaha to not be motorcycle dealers. And they have let them do that, which is weird to me because Yamaha has come to us here at Graham's and we would be Yamaha dirt bike and adventure bike, but they won't allow us to do that. So it's kind of weird to me. They'll let them be side-by-side ATV only, but then they won't let you be dirt bike only when they know you would sell dirt bikes. That's been one thing we kind of scratched our heads with, but, uh, to get back on track, um, I, I left there before my 90 days was even up. I just, it, 
I'd never felt like it was going to work. Um, the general manager that was there that I said was the jerk, he ended up getting arrested and losing his job before I was gone. So that position was open, but uh, it's two brothers that own it. And the one, one of them was like, yeah, I'll give you the keys and let you do whatever. The other was like, ah, man, I mean, you might be gone in a year. And my take on that was kind of like, yeah, but if I turn your business around in a year, does that, then I can find a replacement. I mean, does that really matter if I go on to something higher? And, but I've done good, you know, but anyway, he just wasn't on board. Um, I didn't want to take the chance of, you know, never being able to turn it into something I feel like it could be. So um, I had already reached out to Donnie here and asked him if he needed help, which I didn't know because I'd been in here. And I'm like, doesn't seem like it's big enough, you know, to do what I want to do or, or to, you know, to hire me as a, as your guy, but, uh, talk to him. He's like, yeah, I can, you know, this is what I can pay you, you know? Um, and as we grow, as you grow, you know, you can constantly get raises. I'm going to, you know, and he's like, you know, I know what you know. He's like, so, you know, you, you just pretty much can do what you feel like needs to be done. So, I mean, the day one of me starting here, Donnie's just been like, Hey man, if you think that, yeah, go for it. And he's always been that cool boss of just, you know, I trust you. If you, if that's what we need to order, order it. You know, if that's what, you know, if you feel like we don't need that, you know, it's all on you. And, um, we've had that. It's been great the last, you know, five years. We went from, I don't have the exact numbers the first year because I was here. I started in June. So I missed half a year before I could start really counting how many bikes were, were sold. Um, I'm going to say it was around like 75 Then we sold 304 last year. So, um, you can imagine how much more room you got to have in certain areas for, you know, the increase in motorcycles and also, um, the increase in parts and, and like gear and accessories and stuff. I mean, we have just a ton of gear and, uh, most of the dealers around don't carry anything. So that's really why we try to carry it. But, when you sell that many bikes, you know, you, you have the customer base for, for the growth of that. And, uh, but so, yeah, you're talking about, you know, the, how much the shops changed. I've tried to move, um, the mower stuff, which there's been other things that we, that the business did at times that's gone away. Um, I mean, they did appliances when I first started and luckily appliances are gone. Um, because you can't compete with Home Depot and Lowe's. It's just, you just don't even need to try. So, um, luckily that stuff's gone so that we can move the mower stuff a little forward. And then I've, I've gained, I've gained a little square footage for the motorcycles and I, I try to always push my way in a little bit more and more. Um, but we just, we've gotten to our limit so much. We've added the e-bikes and that took up space. And, you know, it's just, uh, we went through, two years, you know, COVID and the year after COVID where, you know, we sold a lot really quick and they couldn't get us stuff quick enough. So inventory was low. So bike inventory on the floor wasn't packed, but like we're starting to get inventory again now. And there's a lot of stuff that would be cool if I could have everything together that I have in stock and have it on the floor, but I can't, I've got, I mean, I've got tons of bikes in the back that, they're just in a crate and if a guy needs to actually look at it well we're gonna have to drop what we're doing and put it together i mean it's luckily only about 30 minutes but you know um 
it would be cool to, you know, we've got cool ideas. Um, I really like to brand and, uh, you know, have, have a big showing of that brand and all of that stuff in the, in the one area to kind of, you know, give that brand a good presence in the area. Um, and we're kind of limited on that right now, but it's, it's coming. It'll, it'll happen eventually. So, well, a lot of times, you know, with a smaller, you know, versus like a megastore sort of, um, design or, or capabilities, I mean, you know, you've got a lot more, um, I mean, I, I say this because I've come from a lot of also working at a smaller shop, so I get it and I get where you're limited spatially, you know, maybe versus like, okay, I've got all this stuff. How the heck do I actually display and showcase this and do it justice? And when you're limited like that, that's, you know, a certain level of creativity you have to do, I guess maybe much the same as if you have a huge massive space and you know, how do you, how do you build it out that same way? It's just the other side of the problem, but I've experienced, you know, what you're talking about and it definitely it's, it's a challenge and, um, um, but I had some questions. Um, I was going to ask you, okay. um, yeah. you know, it's funny as you describe sort of your, um, your journey, you know, from, from growing up, you know, around it and, and this is, yeah, that's probably where I'll be, but I'm a racer, you know, I, I want to race and then you're racing and you're doing the deal at such a high level. Um, at some point in that journey, like you say, it's like, Oh, you broke my femur, but then I'm back racing again, you know? So obviously the example is that there, you know, you're having some pretty severe setbacks. I mean, I think everybody knows the femur is the biggest bone in your body and definitely a dangerous one to break, you know, for, for what can happen when your femur breaks. Um, but to, you know, come back around and then line back up and get back out there and do your deal, you're still on, you know, that puts a lot of, of credibility out for you to be a fighter, you know, and, and at that point you're up against the odds that you're up against, you know, when you're racing against the big boys. Um, but at some point, you know, in that process you talked about between your, your girlfriend, then your now wife, you know, and that life starts to change and, you know, whether you knew it or not, decisions start to be sort of placed in front of you, you know, like at some point, um, I'll give you my example of this. For me, uh, I was, it was my senior year of high school. I had become the year before that an A-level rider. And I thought I was going to go race nationals. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Even if I was a privateer, that's what I still wanted to do. You know, this, I was many years before you. I was probably 10 or more years before you, but, um, that's what I thought too. And then at the point at which, um, I was getting hurt a little bit, nothing severe, but I had some back issues and some knee issues were kind of a little blown out. Um, and, um, I remember going to one race in particular it was my least favorite track. It was a sand track and being there and being like, okay, you know, the end of this summer in, in New York is where I grew up. So of course summer ends and you're into winter. You don't ride a motorcycle unless you go to Florida or somewhere for the, for the winter. Um, but I remember having to think through and decide, Okay, it was like a sort of a, a turning point or, or a, a fork in the road, you know, make a decision on, okay, I either keep going, you know, and I don't go to college, which I'm all for, you know, skipping out, don't go to college, go do something else if it's not what you're after. But for me, it was like, do I keep racing? What's, what's that long term look like? And I had a hard time wrapping my head around that reality. So that's why I took the, the choice. I sold everything. We sold everything off. I made the decision. It was hard. 
because I didn't want to be around the races. I didn't want to go to watch the nationals when they were in town. I didn't want to, you know, it wasn't great coverage on TV back then, but I didn't want to watch any of it. I didn't want to be at the track. I didn't want to go out with my friends. I sold everything because I couldn't imagine not being at the track and lining up and, and actually racing. So I get it. And at some point, like I say, for you, you had that fork in the road, um, you know, and you chose to take the fork. Obviously you're still racing. You're still, you're still involved with riding and racing and you're still tapped into it with what you're actually selling and doing. Um, but you know, what was the defining factor? And, you know, like I say, at this point, I, you know, you, you know, if it's, if it's family related, um, I can't imagine you saying, yeah, I made the wrong choice. I should have gone the other way, <laughs> but, um, maybe, maybe share a little bit more about that, that fork in the road. Cause obviously there's plenty of racers who leave racing and want to go do something. And then in your example, you were able to plug it into the power sports business. Yeah. Um, well, I never, I mean, I came to the, you know, like high school, my dad really wanted me to go to college. Um, and I contemplated it, you know, but um, I still had in the back of my mind that, like, I want to give the racing thing a shot. Like, you know, because, um, you know, sometimes you, you might put in a result that, you know, is, is decent, but then, you know, you go sometimes to something where it really matters and bad luck happens, you choke, whatever, you know, and uh, then you don't put it in. Um, so, the college thing, like, was day like, I got, I made pretty good grades in school. My dad made sure I was always on the honor roll or I was not going to ride. So, um, I was, you know, better than average kid, I would say grade wise. Um, and I, uh, I just, I don't know. I, I always had that my backup plan can be in my dad's shop, you know, and, and I, I've had so many times where I'm like, I don't want to own it. I don't know what I want to do. And then I just go back to, well, I'm just, I'm just going to own the shop and, you know, work in a shop. So, um, I would say my, the fork in the road where it was like, I've got to like grow up and, you know, not, I still, I never quit racing. Um, even to this day, like, um, I can, I still go and can go pretty fast. Um, I did an area qualifier, uh, this year and I won plus 30 and I got third and plus 25 and I got beat by Jesse Wentland and Nick Gaines. So, I mean, two years ago, Nick Gaines was, you know, getting top 20s in nationals. So, you know, I mean, I can still go and I can still go decently fast cause I, I never quit. So I never lost that. I'm not in tip top shape, so I can't do it long and I can't go to Loretta's and, you know, run 20 minutes with, you know the top 10 plus 25 guys because I just I'm not in shape to do that um but um I so I never quit but I really took a big step back in the end of 2013 up until about 2015 um and the biggest thing was I had kids um so when my oldest boy was born at the end of 2010 um, I had a lot of help. My in-laws are helping a lot. Cause my, my father-in-law and brother-in-law were racing. We're going to the same places. So we take him with us. Like, you know, I've got a lot of help. Uh, my wife's got a lot of help. Her mom's there, you know, her dad's there. Um, so we were, it didn't really slow down when, you know, while he was alive. 
Um, and then even up until my second one, my second boy was born in 2000, April of 2012, we were still going a pretty good bit. I wasn't having to slow down to a point to where I wasn't happy with, you know, having to slow down with racing. I still was, I wasn't racing at, you know, the highest level necessarily much, but I still got my feel of it going local wise. And I was still, you know, I was working full time, learning that part of it. So it kept me, kept me engaged. Um, and then my, so my brother-in-law quit in 2013. So he was going to college and like my in-laws quit. They just pretty much forgot what their bikes were. They were like, how you said you did, you completely sold everything. They were like that completely sold everything. Forgot about it. Don't watch it. Nothing. You know, and I kind of feel like if I was going to quit, I'd have to be the same way because I don't feel like I could like, you know, I would have, it would eat at me too much to like see it and then be like, oh, you know, I would have to delete Facebook and Instagram and stuff so I didn't see it. Any. Get rid of all your friends. Uh, so exactly. Yeah. All my friends are, are moto guys, you know, and, but uh, no, so like uh, my third boy was born at the end of 2014. Uh, I had been doing some schools in 13 and 14 where I had, you know, kids coming and staying with me for, you know, whatever. And, you know, trying to train some guys. I had a couple kids that, you know, I helped them get to Loretta's, uh, you know, go back to back years, like the C class or the B class, which is to me pretty big. Um, you know, the, the C guys, maybe not as big now, but back then it was like a lot of kids would make it in C and they weren't, they weren't anywhere close the next year in B. Um, so I had two local kids that I helped, um, and, uh, you know, they kind of were, uh, the age to like, they had to make the decisions and I had to see them make the decisions of like, am I going to school or am I still racing? You have to give it up, you know? Um, but so 14 when, uh, Bladen was born in, uh, August and then, you know, I, I don't, I, I think it was kind of gradual for me because I didn't never i had times where they were really young and i definitely didn't get to go as much as i would like but i still got to ride some you know i'd sneak off and go ride for a day um i'd hit a race every now and then um then 15 i tried to qualify for loretta's again i, I did a regional um i crashed the first moto i went like 14 7 3 or something at the regional and i got ninth probably could have sent my money in and made it but i didn't i was kind of mad about it so um then, uh, you know, so I guess my slowdown was between 14 and 17. I really slowed down a lot on how much I rode and how much I raced. But my and how old were oldest you boy, spread of time, um, 20, well, I was 25 in 2015. Okay. So, 20, so between 24, 25, yeah, 24, 25, 26, 27. Somehow, like, like I said, somehow 2015. I think it's because I don't know how it worked out because I went and did some of those Amsoil arena crosses um, and actually got eighth in a main in New Orleans in one of them. So it's like, I just, I don't know. I, I could sneak off every now and then. And, you know, I definitely didn't have the riding time other guys did, but because I never quit, you know, but I just had these up and downs of times I could ride and times I couldn't. And, uh, well, would it be fair you know, to, that kept me in it. Would it be fair to say then that for you, the, you know, the sort of the, you know, I'm just envisioning the Y or the fork right in the road, you know, like they're two completely different directions. But for you, maybe 
you know, obviously decisions are made through our lives. You make decisions, you made decisions. We all go through those different things, but maybe for you that sort of that fork where you decide I'm going to go into the business, but I'm not going to, st- you know, you're, the fork on your road has got like two parallel roads. You're like, I can do both those things together. <laughs> you know, maybe that for yeah. you is, is yeah, more. Well, I just had to, yeah, I had to be, you know, I just couldn't be as serious with racing. Uh, you know, I was having to be, you know, I was having to work Monday through Friday. And uh, luckily my dad was open Monday through Friday and half the day on Saturday. So it wasn't a big deal for me to not be there on Saturday. So uh, it was Monday through Friday. Plus with the family and stuff, I, I don't want to work on Saturday. And uh, so, I, um, yeah, I um, I would say that being more serious with work and also more serious with my family made it where I kind of, you know, that transitioned from the serious racer that, you know, to just uh, a weekend warrior, you know, and, and not even necessarily a weekend warrior, sometimes a monthly warrior or every other month warrior. And it's kind of still where I'm at now. Like, you know, I, my oldest boy started riding when he was three. So that would have been in 2013, but he just rode in the backyard. I never was like, he didn't go to a race until like 2016 and uh, it was just a little local race. And then he didn't race in another, like after that, he didn't race again until 2017 when we had moved up here. We went to a race in Missouri. He didn't race one time before that. And he gets out there and it's battling with kids that had like just got back from Loretta's and stuff. And I'm like, you know, maybe he's got something, but that was a PW. He was kind of tall. It was rugged. It kind of was, you know, just worked out that way. But, um, and he gets mad at me to this day that I didn't let him try to qualify for Loretta's that year because his his the middle boy, his little brother, made Loretta's on a PW. So he's like, I would have made it, and you know, he kind of kind of bitter about that. But uh, we just, I, I was, it was just motorcycling is fun. Motorcycle is what I do. I can't lose it. I have to still ride some and race some. Um, and as my boys have gotten older, they all three race. Um, not serious. I mean, just local stuff, you know, I have let them try for Loretta's a couple of times, but they're not at that level. It's just going and getting experience, you know, and learning how to get your butt, your butt smoked. Um, but, um, they, uh, so probably like when we moved up here in 17, um, you know, my wife was, once she got out of school, the times, I guess I would say, you know, times that we got to probably go more was when she wasn't in school. The times that she was in school, you know, she's trying to do school and work. So I'm having to do more, you know, we keep us watching the kids and just doing more at home. And just, you know, the strain of life was harder. So we had to kind of, you know, those dips would be from there. And, uh, but when she graduated college, uh, well, she graduated college three times because she, you know, associates, bachelor's, then a uh, doctorate. So, um, when she got her doctorate and became a nurse practitioner, you know, obviously, you know, money gets a lot better. Um, time gets a lot better. So then we could start, you know, doing things a lot more. Um, and so in 2018, you know, I had my youngest kid was four years old. Well, he was three and a half, you know, starting the year. And I'm like, I want to do Loretta's. I'm 30. I want to go back to plus 30. Like, I think I can win. You know, like this is, it's been my dream forever to win Loretta's. Like, let's go. And, uh, my wife wanted a little girl forever. And so the deal was, we'll try to have a little girl if I get to go to Loretta's. So, uh, we tried the Loretta's deal. My 
middle boy made it on the PW and I made it in plus 30. And uh, so that was like a really cool thing that me and my dad raced Loretta's when I was a kid growing up in the same year. And then now, you know, the, now the third generation, my little boy raced with me at Loretta's. So the first and second raced together there. And then now the second, and third raced together there. Um, and that's pretty cool to race with him same week. We're both racing. Um, and I didn't win, ran up front a good bit, uh, but I was out of shape. So I ended up with just ninth overall and, uh, which not bad for off the couch, you know, guy that works full time and rides, like I said, once a month probably. And, uh, then in 19, uh, I had, a, we had a little girl in 19. <laughs> Crazy how my wife has changed a little bit because if it would have been one of the boys, she would have flipped and it wouldn't have happened. But, uh, like, a week and a half after she was born, my oldest boy, he had been invited to do the KTM challenge at the Supercross. And, uh, I'm like, we have to do this. This is like a once in a lifetime thing. Like he only gets one shot to go, you know? So me and the boys went to Houston with my dad and <laughs> my wife stayed at home with a, you know, a week old baby. And, uh, then, um, later that year, um, I had the wild idea that, I wanted my pro license again, which I had tried to apply for it a couple times before. And like MX Sports was like, yeah, we don't have a bunch of results on you. Like, you know, go to Loretta's. So I went to Loretta's in 18. So I called them back. I'm like, Hey, went to Loretta's. I got ninth. They're like, okay, we'll give you your pro license. And, uh, so got to renew it. And I went to Ironman to do the national in 19. And, uh, I didn't qualify. I rode the 450 class. I got 50th in times. So I wasn't way off especially for a guy with, you know, four kids, full-time job, literally off the couch, you know, hasn't been in the gym in forever. And uh, so I was, you know, it was kind of one of those, like, I want to do it, so I'm going to do it. Um, And uh, so, like I said, it's never, it's never slowed down enough to lose it, but it's definitely not, you know, I I wish we could go like full-time. Like I've got, I've got kids that, you know, I've seen grow up that I've met at local races that we know and we see them doing stuff. My wife, my wife will make comments about like, how do they get to do all that? And I'm like, well, their kid is really fast and has factory support. And like, you know, the companies like pay for him to go do this stuff. And so we like, you know, we kind of go off the grid and let the boys ride every day and you never know. <laughs> Wishful thinking, huh? Well, and it's funny because when you talk about the, um, you know, having been working in the retail environment, working at shops for, for how long now, and to still be good enough shape to, to go show up and do the things you'd been doing in those years, you know, or even, even if it's still now and going out and racing, it's tough. I mean, everybody that would listen to this knows that when you work in and around the motorcycle shop, you're riding usually goes so far off in the back burner, it might not even exist, and how quickly you lose touch, you know, feel, shape, you know, all the different things that you got to have right to to not go out and wad yourself up real good, you know. Yeah, for sure. That's, you know, and that's the thing, like, you get to a level, you, like, mentally, you know how to ride, you know, you know where you could, where you think you could be, but sometimes physically, you know, you just, you can't. And then also, you know, the time away from the bike sometimes, you know, definitely holds you back. Um, and, you know, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You know, I, I, you know, I'll go out there, you know, try to jump out front and 
run where I can. When I start getting tired, well, let's back it down because I got to right. go to work Monday get and the, I got kids get the, I got to take care get of. Get the whole and, shot. That's the be- that's yeah. the race you got to win, and then work backwards <laughs> if you have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, but I still have fun with it. And a lot of my customers, I think, I do think that helps with like just serious, like them taking us serious too. With like my star mechanic Grayson, he's he's young. He's twenty. He just turned twenty three. Um, but he goes with us and uh, he, he races, he races a lot more than I do, but you know, people know us at the track. And I think when they see that, you know, that we race and we're there, it's kind of more of a, like, I can really trust this guy with what he's telling me. You know, I can re- like, I mean, cause we get technical questions a lot, you know, you guys, a lot of times that, you know, Hey, I, you know, what do you think or whatever? Like, I mean, we had a, we had a, kid come from they're from south louisiana so they're five hours away and his dad called me uh he had qualified for loretta's this year his dad called me like two weeks before and he's like hey uh we got a uh one of these rockstar edition 250s that uh we're having some problems with it running it's kind of weird it's intermittent he's like what do you think and i told him a couple of things to check they checked it called me back man all that stuff checked out he's like can i bring it up there and drop it off and then y'all have it and if y'all need to ride it ride it whatever and then we'll kick it up on our way through going to Loretta's because, like, we don't have we have, like I trust it. You know, y'all can try to figure something out. So we did. He brought it. We got it. Um, and we didn't find anything wrong with it. It's one of those like ghost deals that like it, we couldn't even make it mess up. And uh, just did all the general checks to make sure everything that was okay that you know would be any kind of problem. And we took it and rode it. And uh, this was the weekend before Loretta started and. It was fine. It never messed up on me. Had a couple other guys ride it. Never messed up on anybody. So he takes it, and uh, it was fine at first. And uh, then he's running top three, and I'm like, you know, we just it was out of the blue because he's a sea rider. He's never done anything, so it's just like he just you know had been training at a facility close to him. Comes out of the blue, and he's and I'm watching every moto just like. You know, he's up front, and I'm like, please don't mess up because we just had our hands on this thing. And uh, it ended up actually, it kind of the problem started kind of coming back. Uh, he had it kind of cutting out on him some in one of his motos. It didn't mess him up any for the moto, but it, so he took it to KTM there because um, they had their whole race team, you know, at, at Loretta's with rider support and uh, told him, you know, told rider support that, you know, we had worked on it some. Luckily, all the guys at KTM know me and Donnie, so they they treated them really well. Ended up uh, having to replace the wiring harness just because I, I guess they felt maybe it's a broke wire or, you know, it's maybe not completely broke, but, you know, it, it's losing connection at some point to something, and it's, it, you know, making it have a miss to it. And uh, they got him going, and, uh, it, you know, as far as they know, fixed the problem for the second half of the week. And the kid went on to get second overall in one of the C classes. And, uh, like, that's pretty cool. Like, his mom, like, messaged me on us for everything we did. And, like, that's pretty cool, you know. But I feel like uh, them knowing how much, you know, like, where I was in racing and how much, you know, I, you know, or not how much I still ride, but at least how much I'm still involved, how much Grayson rides, and that, like, we're going to be the guy that has our hands on it. They have the confidence that, I'm going to send it to you before this, you know, before the biggest race of the kid's life that he's ever had, you know, that he's had so far. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that's, 
a pretty cool thing that we get that I feel like it's, you know, because of the background, you know, if I didn't have that racing background, you might not get some of those guys. Well, and part of, you know, the way you're describing that reminds me, of you know, that was for me where I couldn't figure out how do I plug the enthusiasm I had from racing and wanting to be a racer and wanting to win and all this. I just couldn't see a normal plug in for just regular corporate life or whatever, you know, like whatever that job is or whatever that making a living looks like. I couldn't figure it out. Um, And then it kind of struck me that, well, I could work at shops. Why does that matter? It was like, well, because that's where racers go. That's where enthusiasts, the other guy, like I could relate to them. And maybe some of what I've done or or been, you know, through will be something they can understand. Uh, We, you know, we can obviously be on the same page about that. But also, like you're saying, I bring the experiences of the failures and the issues I've had to that, which, you know, at the basic level in this business, that's, you know, it's our own, it's a that sort of double-edged sword. You know, we, we rely so much on enthusiasts for our customer base, right. To, to be enthusiasts or not all racers, right. You know, in your case, your shop is heavily geared toward that. Um, but when we make that be our employees, you know, um, that makes it tough sometimes, but needed, it's so needed, you know, to, to, to legitimize, you know, that we, know what we're doing we're doing it at the high level like you guys do um it's um i guess that you know it brings a couple questions to mind first you know um obviously looking back on it you know that you know your journey from you know um around shops you know and racing and then pro level racing and then shops and also racing monthly regionally weekly monthly whatever it ends up being for you but um do you, um, you know, your path is your own, but do you foresee, you know, like imagine this, imagine, you know, if your children want to get into the motorcycle business, do you think that you encourage them and you are like, heck yeah, it's been a great life for me. I'm sure it would for you. Or do you look at it and say, this is rough because <laughs> the business can be tough like anything else. Right. But, um, you know, what's, what's your vibe on if your kids come to you and say, I want to get in the motorcycle business too? Um, well, I mean, I did start them riding for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I want them to enjoy, enjoy motorcycling. Um, whether they like it enough that they want to do that every day, you know, I mean, that's going to just have to be up to them. Um, but I would, you know, like you said, it, it, it can be tough just because, you know, it might not might not always be the most lucrative job or, you know, um, lucrative business. I mean, you could, you know, I could probably try to go find a job at some, you know, corporation somewhere and, you know, make twenty or $30,000 more, but, you know, I'm not having fun doing that. So, um, you know, it, if they... I wouldn't discourage it if they want to take this route. Um, but I'm not going to be like, Hey, we do motorcycles. You got to do motorcycles. You know, I have, um, I mean, I talked about my one little girl, but I have another little girl that's, uh, not quite two months old. So I have five kids. So I'm not gonna, you know, if one of them decides to still like motorcycles, then I guess I won. (laughs) I still, you know, my thing is, um, my dad is 62. And he still rides. So, like, hey, you know, me and dad, and well, now, you know, 
me and grandpa and the kids, you know, all can ride together. And, uh, I just, I want to be like that. I want to be, you know, when I'm older and I still want to ride, and you know, maybe hit a race every now and then, I hope that I have a, you know, one or two of the boys that's like, you know, still into it, still, you know, at least want to ride and be like, yeah, let's go ride dad, you know? And, um, you know, still just they enjoy the sport, you know, whether they work in it or not. Um, I probably wouldn't be real pushy, but I wouldn't tell them not to. Like if they're like, Hey dad, like I know like, you know, what all you know, what you've done. Like I want to be, you know, I want to work for KTM one day or, or I want to work for Kawasaki or, you know, I definitely wouldn't discourage it. I would encourage it and try to, you know, use my resources to help them do that, you know, help them, you know, get wherever they would want to get in the industry if that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, obviously there's no right or wrong answer. I just think, you know, I don't know, ask me on a certain day and I might tell you, oh, hell no. I would never tell my kids. About <laughs> well, and, and <laughs> you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of the same way sometimes. Um, just, and it's, you know, um, most of the time, you know, it's never really the shop bill that, you know, but I have tried to get, you know, different jobs more in the industry. That's not just a shop that's, you know, either rep jobs or, you know, different things. And that side really, really hurts me you know and uh so when it would come to that i I might would be like i don't know if you want to you know but i've never worked on that side so i can't say what it would be like to work on that side but i know how hard it is to get into that side i mean it's you know feels like to me it's almost impossible (laughs) um what else i wanted to ask you about um you do uh your own podcast um shop moto pod right yep um, tell yep, us, yep. T- I mean, tell, tell, you know, tell us like what that is. And I guess for me, I'm really curious on, did that come about just cause you felt like you want to talk about what you guys talk about on that? Or was it, um, like one of those where you, you wished that existed. So you thought, well, I guess I should just do it. Cause what I, what I specifically <laughs> want to hear, it doesn't exist. Obviously there's plenty of podcasts. Everybody sort of has their own, right? Yeah. So the, I'm a big, big podcast guy. Like, um, I, um, um, I listen to Pulp pretty religiously and have for, man, since like almost the beginning of Pulp MX. And, uh, I used to listen to Daniel Blair before he made the charge and stuff and just try to listen to a bunch. And, uh, I just would listen to stuff and there was guys that would get on and I'm like, I mean, I know as much as you or more. Or, you know, <laughs> I want to tell you my opinion on it, you know, and, uh, but to get on something like that, you know, I mean, you know, you've got to know the right people, whatever. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not the kind of guy to, I like to talk, you know, and definitely to talk about moto and stuff, but I'm not the guy to like, to like call in and to stuff like that and try to like, you know, be a character or make a scene or anything. So, um, but just listening to other podcasts, kind of like, like, man, I, you know, kind of want to do my own, you know, and then with other, seeing other people that maybe weren't very like well-versed in the industry, be able to kind of get a platform from a podcast and even get on some of these and kind of get to know people. And I'm like, man, if that guy can do it, I can do it for sure. You know, so that kind of started it. Um, and then 
uh, when Grayson started working here, me and him would just, I mean, dude, we bench raced all the time. I'm like, well, we should just record us bench racing. Like, <laughs> maybe people would like it and, you know, want to listen to it. So that's pretty much what it started out as. It's us, you know, kind of bench racing about stuff. And it's, we've gotten to where we always talked about the local stuff because we figured, like, we thought, like, if we want listeners, we need to, like, get our local base listening to us. Like, that's made our local riders on board with us and that's like the guys that'll support us help us you know really help us kind of grow and uh so we've you know we would get off on things where we'd really talk about pro stuff a lot um but here lately we've tried to be way more amateur motocross so there's not as many guys really focused on that but also too um we're trying to just get interviews with guys it seems like when we have a guest on we have way more views than when it's just me and him. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even, I've even went to put it on YouTube. Um, I, I've got like three episodes on YouTube. So I started doing that. And, uh, I mean, we're like, we started doing it in 2020. Uh, so a little over two years and we've had 40, it's 40 episodes. But I think we've actually had 42 because I've had some that weren't actually episodes. Um, so we've had a decent amount of, of episodes but it's just it hasn't i mean i feel like you've got a that growing that like i think you have to get lucky and the right people have to kind of be like okay we want to and and say share it and then it just gets that popularity where everybody's like oh yeah, yeah like we're gonna you know like we have you know a lot of our customers a lot of our local riding here listens to us they like it you know they follow us and whatnot and we we like to joke around and goof around with it we just sent stickers to a handful of guys, a couple kids, and we made up like a fake contract, you know, just to kind of, and it was like, it had a lot of jokes in it just to joke and be funny. And like one of the kids is, I don't know, 50, he's young, he's like six or seven, you know, and his dad helped us out. He's made some intros for us with the podcast and helped us since the very beginning. And uh, he, uh, so the little boy got the contract and stuff uh, last night and he, uh, like his dad sent us a video of him signing it and like you would have thought like it was the greatest thing ever because he never had anything like that you know it just made the kids day and uh you know just cool things like that we don't you know we don't make any money from it we spent uh, a pretty decent amount of money home home equipment and stuff like that to be able to do it um but you know we're lucky to have a cool boss you know he likes it it's kind of advertising for him because, you know, we mentioned the shop on there. We do it at the shop. And, and so we can have the time to do it here. And, you know, it's usually an hour. So it's not like it's that, you know, that much. But, um, yeah, we, uh, it's just, like I said, just kind of a thing for fun. And it would be cool if it turned into something bigger. Um, I kind of like the media side of it. Like, it would be cool to give my thoughts and opinions on things and be on the media side of it. But, um, you know, I, I don't have the luxury of like putting my life on hold to gamble to try to get into that. So it's kind of like I can do it when I can, and you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll have fun with it if it if it grows into something. If it does, if not, well, we had fun talking about moto and a couple people listening to us and laughing about it. Well, obviously, I'm a big fan of podcasts, but you know, I'm a little biased, right? But. I think, um, you know, mine is so, uh, 
I always laugh and think, man, if I was smart, if I wanted to make money, I would have done one that an, an average human being would want to listen to, even if it's, you know, a subsection. Ours is such a niche area if it's those who interact with dealers and then which one of those people listen to podcasts, you know. So my numbers are not huge, but I do it because I that's the audience that I like to be around. I like to chat with, right? People like you or yeah. people otherwise in the industry and talk about stuff. But from the retail perspective, because you're obviously either doing it from the shop or it's, you know, includes things from the shop or it's an obvious tie in with a couple of you being, you know, at the shop or from the shop. Um, that really gives another really killer engagement point, you know, with your audience, which, you know, like we talked about is heavily race oriented um, and just adds another layer of legitimacy for you guys. I think it's really smart. Um, I only listened to one of your episodes, you know, um, I think it was one with Rob, Coach Rob on it, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But what I was going to say was, I mean, maybe for you guys, maybe it's a matter of, you know, the ones you've been doing with, you know, uh, guests like that, which are great, because, of course, then you're tapping into that person's audience and that person's sort of sphere. Um, I mean, I you know, we're talking out loud, but, you know, if a shop or somebody has ideas and they, they want to take the time and resources to share something to their audience, to the retail audience that already is either potentially their customer or is their customer to add value. That's, you know, it's not a huge investment. It's not hard to do. You just got to be prepared to either talk and interview people or, uh, you know, um, I guess that's it. You just got to be prepared to talk <laughs> or have other people that talk and go yeah. with topics, you know, but I think it's smart. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been, like I said, it's been a cool thing. And I also do, you know, I'm a, uh, USMCA certified coach, um, and have been, I was one of the first 100. I've been certified since the thing first started. Um, I think 18 was the first year they actually started certifying coaches. But, um, I, I, so I've got that too. Like somebody comes in and KTM is a big supporter of that. So they send out little things to say, you know, do you need a coach or find a coach or whatever? We've got KTM, Brandon one's gas, gas one. And it's funny, like, they're like, who's the USMCA? I'm like, here I am. I'm the only one within hundreds of miles. So <laughs> you got me and that's it. But, like, you know, I think it says a lot that, like, KTM wants that. They want somebody in the shop being a certified coach because when people come in and they're like, hey, we're kind of new to riding, like, is there somebody that teaches or whatever? Well, they want a guy that's certified, you know, because it, it's just – it puts legitimacy to it. Um, so um, I am – you know, USMCA certified, but I've been coaching kids since 2010 because I was kind of a thing to make a little bit of money as a privateer and help out the local kids that, you know, I saw at the races. And I've always been big on, I want to grow my area in the, you know, in motorcycling. So how do I grow my area? Well, if I coach kids, if, you know, I'm active at the tracks, if I'm trying to get more tracks, like, because if I'm at a shop and I need to sell motorcycles and parts, well, I need, you know, I need, I need the moto community to be very strong. So I need to do whatever I can do to help make it strong. So, um, that's, you know, the well, coaching thing you've done. It, and the coaching thing is really one thing I would love to do full time, mm-hmm. but man, the investment to get to do that full time is very large. <laughs> right. Well, and then you'd be most likely have to be on the road all the time, right? You'd have to be traveling because you wouldn't be able to do it just in your locale all the time. You'd have to be living, living in a 
camper and uh i don't know if your family's ready to do that are they yeah well um you know if you had a you have to have a facility here local you know pretty at your house or here local that like you that you can travel to in a short distance that the kids go and train at you know it's really you know i mean hitting the same you're hitting the same races that you're already doing now so it's just uh, the weekly grind you know um but I'm okay with the weekly grind. Um, I don't like, you know, I, like I said, I've got a lot of kids. So, you know, during the week, they're into all kinds of sports. So, you know, it's nothing for me to get off at five and, you know, go straight to the baseball field and be there till eight o'clock, you know, and then I get home and I gotta, there's, there's things we gotta do around the house. And, you know, it's just, it's never, never a sit down moment. You know, I get, I honestly get more rest and sit down, I think, at work than I do at home. So, <laughs> Um, <laughs> so I'm okay with the, the, you know, that grind. It's just, um, I'm not in the position to, with a large family and stuff and, you know, uh, people depending on you, not in a position to go and say, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm going to take out this loan. I'm going to take this large chance that we're going to build this and I'm going to make it work. And, you know, I'm not going to really make much of an income for five years, but you know, in the end it'll pay off. Like I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not in that kind of position, so I have to, you know, I have to do it however I can do it. So um, I'm lucky to have a few people with private tracks that allow me to right. come and do, you know, a well, weekend class there. And, well, and and also because Donnie's not going to want you to up and be not there all the time. How the heck is he going to run the business, right? If you're not there, so the next question would be, <laughs> yeah, the next question would be if if somebody hears this and it's a guy that's ready to invest and he thinks that you know you'd be tip of the spear or perfect position for that. How the heck would you be planning and backfilling and and figuring out how to make sure you could be replaceable at the shop, right? That ends up being a common conversation not for real i'm joking around about that stuff but um in general like so you know how do you recruit somebody to come work at a shop that's obviously you know so high level enthusiast and racer my guess is you'd have to have anybody that would go there would have to be from the racing scene yeah so um well luckily Grayson, our mechanic he uh he can do more than mechanic he can sell parts and sell bikes and um, we've taught him to do, you know, a lot of the other stuff. And I think, you know, as he will get older, he's probably going to want to transition a little bit. Um, and I, I kind of feel like it's probably easier to fill a mechanic spot than it is a guy that really knows his parts and service, you know, parts and sales. Um, so I would think eventually graduating Grayson into more of a, a higher role, I would say, you know, more responsibility um, as he gets older. And then two, we've also, I mean, we've talked about this and looked at this for when we move because we're going to, we're going to try to be a little bit bigger to where we're going to need some more employees. So we have some guys that are on the radar that, you know, they're either, you know, ready to leave where they're at and their motor, they're, they're guys that ride and race that, you know, they're not in the motorcycle industry right now, but they, they know it because they're an enthusiast, you know, and they, uh, so they're, you know, well in tune with it. And it's somebody that would be easy to teach. And then it's like, you know, well, you know how to work on your motorcycle and you know, you know, you know what a, you know, what a carburetor is, you know, what, you know, you know how to tell a guy how to change his gearing. You just need to know like 
how to actually do the work inside the shop, which is honestly the easy part. You know, the that's that's not the hard part to learn. So there's a there's a few guys that uh, that we have on the radar that um, you know could could slide in and, and be trained and taught. So, uh, well, I, I but that has come up. That has been yeah. a thing of you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, people not want me to be gone from here for, you know, for, for other jobs, other, you know, other things. So, um, I guess it's good to be needed that much, <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it's also like a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. And, you know, that's like, yeah, exactly right. That's, you know, the, you know, the, at this point, the, the amount of sort of layering in you've got in, in your particular situation in your life and the different things you like to do, they all compound in to help the business. So your, the riskiness of somebody like you that is doing multiple things like that, I'm sure is, is more exponentially a greater reward in terms of, you know, what you've been bringing to the shop. But you know, like I say, I just always like to, uh, to ask because, uh, you know, at, at this point, shop folk, you know, we need, we need more people in the business. And it's funny. I was, I think I told this story, I don't know, a couple months ago to somebody, I don't know if I put it on an episode or not, but I was in, my family went to, my wife went to work for a week in South Carolina at one of her uh, company's offices to do some training out there. And so I was there, the little kids and I and my wife, and we just went and played around and saw the sites while she went and slaved and worked, you know, (laughs) but, uh, we, um, we were there and we were staying at a hotel the first night we got in and um, the lady in the at the front desk of the hotel, super sweet, like, you know, talkative and nice and everything and, and checked in and dialed in. And the next morning I went down to, I think it was going on to get breakfast or something and talking to her at the front desk, you know, just while I waited for some food and she's talking about something. She starts telling a story about her son. You know, he's, you know, a handful and got a motorcycle all taken apart in the back of the house and I'm like, really? Like what? Like how? And she starts telling me this story and she's got this son who's just likes taking stuff apart and it turned into taking motorcycles apart. And uh, I was like, interesting. She told me this whole story. And it turns out it was a Goldwing, an older Goldwing that she, that he had taken apart. So that's a lot of parts, right? A lot of pieces. <laughs> and, oh, uh, yeah. And um, she tells me the whole story and I'm like, we're laughing and joking about it. And then she got busy. You know, somebody came up to the desk and of course I jump out of the way and not taking up her time. And I went back upstairs, but before we left that if, when we went to check out, I stopped and I said, you know what? I should, it should have occurred to me. Um, I, I don't not trying to tell you what you need to do with your child, but, um, just so you know, the thing that your kid has taken apart in, in the backyard, if he has an affinity toward, um, taking apart and, and building and doing different things with, with motorcycles, if you guys hadn't already considered somehow looking at getting him in the business, whether it's working at a local shop you know, to be trained, you know, by someone there or going to school for that. That's a business that that's looking for people. And she was like, Oh really? Never would have thought it. And he, he was like 17, 18 years old. So, you know, the age where he maybe decided to go do something like that. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, you guys are doing a, I'm sure a good job and being at the races, your visual, I guess it's just a matter of making sure you got the right people lined up for the for the potential seats on the bus. Um, I want to change gears. We've been on quite a bit. I have one other sort of topic that I wanted to cover since you had mentioned it. Um, e-bikes. So e-bikes, I'll preface with saying, 
um, I think are awesome, right? Um, and mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of variation. That's sort of an emerging field and and how they're built and who builds them and what's the best and all that stuff, right? So there's a lot of cool stuff out there and it, it's changed and, and changing really fast. Um, but um, I think there are, you could probably line up, you know, five or six um, professionals, some real, real smart people from our business and you'll get, you know, flip a coin as to whether they are for e-bikes being a power sports thing or not being a power sports thing. I am of the opinion that they're awesome. Um, and it's a matter of can the shop, you know, dedicate the resources that they need to do for that sort of product line to do it correctly. Um, and are they partnering with, you know, a particular manufacturer that you have confidence in and all the things you need to do for the long term um, parts, you know, a service help, you know, warranty, all the different things that they would have to do much like power sports, regular stuff. Um, but I see it as a, as a, as a building block to, to sort of widen out, um, power sports and already there's plenty we talked about. There's plenty of guys who are already probably too wide. They're doing everything for everybody. You know, everything that is a power sports thing they've got and they're selling in the store and, you know, um, but I'm of the opinion that that's really a good fit. Um, and because we can take a little bit of that enthusiastic folks from the bicycle world, uh, but the ones who the bicycle world seems to have been shunning. So that is my soapbox on it. Um, how do you think they fit in and have you gotten any sort of, uh, do you see that pushback from others in the industry? Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm on the same page as you, like, I mean, you summed a lot of it up pretty much perfectly. So, uh, I mean, I, I think it's good because it brings, like you said, it brings more people in and some of them's the same customers. I've had a lot of, you know, motorcycle customers that they either already had mountain bikes or they were like maybe kind of like wanting a mountain bike, but they're just like, man, I got a pedal now. And then when it's an e-bike, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll get one of these. Cause it's not, you know, as hard. So, um, they, uh, and then, so, you know, you said that bringing the bicycle guys in that are shunned, that's how we became a dealer. Mm. So, um, we, Donnie knew that the Husqvarna and gas gas e-bike thing was coming. Like he had people at KTM tell, you know, Hey, you know, this is, this is going to be a thing like, you know, and, uh, so he's like, I want to kind of be ahead of the curve and already be well versed in e-bikes like a year or so before we start getting hooked up on e-bikes because I don't want to get them and then be clueless about them. So he had, he sent specialized an email just inquiring about being a dealer. Well, so the, uh, I think it was like the national sales manager called him. I was like, Hey, we got your uh, inquiry. Um, you were kind of already on our because we have started looking at the power sports dealers in the area and, you're the power sports dealer that's actually selling dirt bikes. So, uh, you want to be a dealer? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, yeah, send it in. Like, you know, what do we do? So they set it all up and, uh, and we got specialized e-bikes and I mean, we were pretty clueless, um, on what, you know, how everything worked on them, which, you know, they, they taught us stuff, they had videos. We, you know, we kind of learned on how things work. Um, and then Donnie was smart enough to, reach out to some of his buddies that they were bicycle guys 
And not only that, they were open to e-bikes. So we've had a couple guys, like when we have them put together, we have a guy that's a, like he is a certified bicycle tech. He puts them together for us. We don't do them because we not, you know, Donnie's kind of learning a little bit. He's trying to kind of flirt with a little bit so we can, you know, um, somebody here maybe can know a little bit, you know, um, but they're still pretty green for us. We've only been doing them for a couple years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, like I said, we, we have other, uh, others who are well-versed in the bicycle world who have been at our call that we can ask, Hey, like, you know, we have questions, we ask them and then that can, so we learn. So then when customers come in, we can inform them if they're, if they don't really know, but you get a lot of guys that, you know, they want to e-bike and the local shop is like, yeah, you know, we don't really want to sell you an e-bike. And the local shop in Memphis, um, this local specialized dealer, they would not keep e-bikes in stock. The guy would order them. He would special order them. Uh, but he wouldn't keep them. So specialized told him like, Hey, uh, we're going to set up a power sports dealer. Uh, unless you stock a bunch of them and he wouldn't do it. So they set us up and I think he was kind of a little mad about it at first because, you know, he, uh, they set up a dealer and we're, you know, 30, 45 minutes from him. But, um, he actually came and bought an e-bike from us. He had somebody wanting one and, uh, we had one in stock and Donnie sold it to him. So I think it kind of mended that a little bit where he's not just like, you know, all idiots don't know anything about it or whatever. Um, but, uh, it's been a learning curve, especially for me. I mean, I'm, I grew up pretty heavy into bicycles as a kid, but like, into like freestyle bicycle stuff, you know, just mm-hmm. making little dirt jumps at the house and jumping on and, you know, then eventually went to like wanting to take the bike to the skate park and that kind of stuff. And I was pretty big into that as a kid. Um, but I was never into like mountain bikes and, you know, I did have a road bike to train on and, you know, when I got to the point where I'm you know, trying to train, but, um, it was never like big time into bicycling where I knew what everything was and what was going on. So, um, some of it's a little, you know, little green, we got to learn it. Um, and we're still building that customer base, you know, but, uh, it's kind of mixed. You get guys that are already dirt bike guys. They want an e-bike. They buy it from you. They're, they're already buying dirt bikes from you. So that goes good. Uh, and then we do get the guy that, you know, he's a mountain bike guy, but you know, um, the, the other shop won't doesn't have e-bikes or won't carry them, so we get that guy in, and and then every now and then you get guys in that are just interested in something, but they don't want a dirt bike because you know for whatever reason. Uh, and I've even had, I've even had the guy that was a dirt bike guy, but he feels he's too out of shape or too old for a dirt bike just because of the weight and things like that. So he doesn't want to completely quit riding. He doesn't want to completely not do something bike related. So he gets rid of the dirt bike and buys an e-bike. So that's another one for the industry. Like there might be some guys that we would lose completely, but because of the e-bike, we don't lose them. We keep them. And that's like, you know, I I mean, how can you say that's bad? How can you say it's bad to get, you know, you know, to say that, you know, a quarter, uh, a third of your guys are already dirt bike guys, but two thirds are guys that were going to quit or guys that were bicycle guys who are now mm-hmm. coming to a power sports dealership to buy their stuff. Well, and it, and they yeah. buy a bike and they buy a helmet and they yeah. buy a jersey and, you know, 
Well, they then they stay engaged with with your store and your in your in sort of your community, meaning like not your city or town, but within the other group of you know people in like you say in your shop and other other um, other customers that are coming in there. And you know that's where a lot of times you meet people to ride with. And I have to assume the thing same thing could apply for that space. Plus, like you just mentioned, if it, yeah, I'm imagining if somebody comes in and, you know, they're like, oh, I was thinking about a bike, but I don't know. I'm, I'm second guessing it because I just don't know if I'm going to keep myself in shape enough to go ride. I only want to ride once in a while. I'm going to go out to the track or I'm going to go to the trails. and I'm going to be exhausted and whatever. If they decide that an, an e-bicycle or, you know, let's, let's call it a bicycle at some level, um, but with pedal assist sort of capabilities, if that can get the person out there and their heart pumping, right. And, and they're potentially, um, the cardio better and the other, you know, all of a sudden then that, that person is a healthier individual. Is there a, a chance that they're going to keep coming in? I would say yes, it would seem likely. Right. And is there a chance that they may find themselves in a better fitter shape and decide that they also want that dirt bike? Now I feel like I'm in better shape. I just feel like those are just really solid tie-ins to keep the community good and strong. Um, I, you know, other than a financial, piece where you say, well, there are a lot of money. The bikes are expensive. Motorcycles are expensive. The gear, everything's expensive, right? And like, and it's, you know, no, and in sight how expensive it is. So I get that, you know, um, you know, money wise, you could, you could argue that, um, somebody you're tap out their, their budget and, and they didn't buy a motorcycle because they bought an e-bicycle, but I just feel like it would be, you'd rather have them spend the money with you than either at the regular bicycle shop or at any of the other things that aren't, you know, a shop that you're a part of where their budget gets blown. So, uh, yeah, for sure, I agree. Um, I I think this is the longest one I've done in a while. I think um, we should plan to jump on another one at some point in the near future. But I want to wrap this up okay, because sure. I don't I don't want the number associated with the time on the clock. It'll still be at like two hours. I don't want it to, I don't want the number to scare people away. I always joke and say, I'm not Joe Rogan and, and nobody wants to listen to me for that long, but thankfully uh, you're not afraid to, to share. So a lot of it's you, you chatting in your stories and I appreciate you coming on and sharing them. Yeah. Thank you for having me on and I will come on again. Um, I mean, I'm pretty much open book. Like I said, I mean, I have my own podcast, so, I like to talk, especially with moto stuff. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, we maybe we can delve into some of the other stuff, uh, claiming rule, all that stuff on another one, and and maybe it'll be old news <laughs> by then. But um, you know, there's other cool stuff to talk about. But I'm glad we got some of your story out, and I feel like uh, the reason I like to sort of get you to share some of that is because I think it's relevant for people who. Uh, are in the business, they're not sure, like, do I, you know, where I'm a racer and I'm thinking about the business, if, if they can hear somebody else's story and the twists and turns and, uh, you know, that you're chugging along, you've got many irons in the fire, you're enjoying life, you know, through, uh, part of it, part of which a big chunk of it, you know, beyond family, the part of it being at the motorcycle shop. So thanks for sharing it. Yes, sir. Thank, like I said, thank you for having me on and, uh, anytime. We'll